Syria and the uttermost parts of the earth. God, I'm asking that you would cause our faith to be enlarged this morning, that we might be people that please you by our faith. And we thank you for the the bold word Pastor Ruth has this morning, that you would just pour your anointing on her. That would change the atmosphere. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's message is called Showdown Ready. When I think of that that term, showdown ready or showdown, what comes to your mind? (laughs) A fight, yeah. Uh, The showdown at at, um, OK Corral is what came to my mind, which kind of dates me. But actually, that happened in 1881, so it doesn't date me. It happened in Arizona, and it took about 30 seconds to complete with 30 rounds of being fired. And so there was a showdown. And all through history, all through history, there's been showdowns like that one. Showdowns between the light and darkness, the good and the evil. So when you think about the word showdown, it's defined as a conclusive settlement of an issue. It decides something. It's it's permanent. When all resources and all power are used to, to affect that to happen. So why am I talking about showdowns this morning? Why why am I? And I I'm telling you about it because I believe that we are headed towards one that is like none other. And so I want to prepare you for what God is doing. God has stirred my heart with the word for this morning. I've travailed on behalf of the word for this morning. And it's for you and for me as individuals. And the Holy Spirit of God wants to stir our hearts this morning in a way that we haven't been stirred in a long time. And so as we head towards this story in the word of God about a showdown, I want to remind you what it says in God's word about light and darkness. The scripture, it's fascinating because the scripture says that there is no communion No communion between light and darkness. No communion. They don't have anything to do with one another. Light always discloses darkness. Darkness actually runs from the light. Don't you love that? Darkness runs from the light. I love what 1 John tells us. This is the message in 1 John 1, 5-7. This is a message which we have heard from him and we declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. None. No darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Light always exposes darkness. When a light is turned on, it immediately makes itself known. Are you aware of that? You turn that light on, and you're aware of it. 
And it, it reveals objects that are not seen in the darkness. And light and darkness cannot coexist. Wherever the light shines, darkness flees. And the good news is that light always wins. Light always wins over darkness. John 1.5 says this, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. And we need to remember that truth as you go through the days ahead and you look at what's happening in your life and in the lives of those in our nation. We have to remember that light always wins. That's truth from God's word. Sometimes it doesn't look like we're winning on the planet earth right now. But the truth is that light always wins. And that should shake you up and cause you to say hallelujah. Because light always wins. It should stir hope. The darkness does not put out the light. Thank you Jesus. Jesus tells us more about the showdown between light and darkness when he was talking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jew, and it's found in John 3, 19 to 21, and he says this, and this is the, con- and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. He came. The light came into the world. And men love darkness more than light. Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. I love that. So this morning, I want to take you to one particular showdown found in the Word of God. And it's a different kind of showdown than the gunfight that I talked about. It was much more powerful. And it's a, sh- it's a showdown where light triumphs over the darkness. Great victory is, is done. And it was a showdown between gods. And this showdown story this morning has something for you. And the Holy Spirit has been, been preparing you to receive what he has for you. So I want to give you a little background before I start the story about the showdown. So that you know as it starts where I'm coming from. This goes back to the time when, of David and Goliath. Around that period of time. And the Israelites wanted to have a king. They wanted to be like every other nation. And, they, and God wanted to be their king. He, he said, hey, I'm your king. You don't need a king. But they wanted to be like everyone else around them. And he warned them what would happen if they, they got a king to rule over them. How it would take their children and their finances and their land. He told them all about that. And they said, we still want it. We want a king. And I want you to see what their desires got them. They got ungodly, evil kings and queens leading them into sin and leading them away from God. These leaders often steered their affections away from God, even requiring them to turn that way. Things had gotten so bad at the beginning of our story that's found in 1 Kings 
that Elijah the prophet gave a word from the Lord and he said, because there's such evil in the land, there's not going to be any rain or dew in the, in the earth. And time passes and this country of Israel is in dire need of rain. Three years without rain would create some pretty huge problems, wouldn't it? And it's at this point that our story begins. And the scriptures are going to be on the overhead, and they're all from 1 Kings 18, and I'm going to go through the story with you. So I'm not going to talk about the references from this point on. There's one thing I want you to pay attention to as as we go through this story. I want you to keep in mind the people's responses in this story. It's interesting. All right? And this is the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, the victory that was happened then. So I'm starting in verse 17 of 1 Kings chapter 18. Then it happened when Ahab, and Ahab was the king. And it's interesting, the scripture says that Ahab was more wicked than any other king before him. He was a bad guy. And he was leading God's people. When he saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Oh, that's you, O troubler of Israel. And verse 18, he says, Elijah answers, and he says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's household have. For you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. The Baal was a god, the god of the forces of nature, and one that many of the the nations around Israel worshipped. And the king and the queen and the Israelites, they had forgotten when God came down on the mountain and he stirred their hearts and he spoke to them and he said this in Exodus 20, 1 through 3. He said, starting in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And you shall have no other gods before me. They had forgotten that. You shall have no other gods. The Lord God demands absolute loyalty. Did you know that this morning? That the God that you serve demands loyalty. He's a jealous God and he wants all of you. He doesn't just want a part of you. He wants, and he doesn't want you to worship him and other gods in addition. So in verse 19 it says, Now therefore... Send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Azura who eat at Jezebel's table. And Jezebel was the queen. And she was even more wicked than Ahab the king. And they, they had all of these men, these 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Azura. They all ate at their table daily. They lived with them. And Elijah is saying, okay, we're going to all get together. We're going to come together and we're going to come together on Mount Carmel. And he's saying, bring those prophets with you. Carmel was the highest peak in a mountain range and it was known for its lush, fertile forests and it was a sacred site of Baal worship. So in verse 20, It's interesting that the king, he sends for all the children of Israel to come. So when the king told you to come, you came. 
So all of Israel came and they gathered with the prophets on top of this mountain. You, can you imagine the sight it would have been? Even the fact of 400 prophets of Baal up there would have been a lot of people, but all the Israelites were there too. It would have been a crazy moment in time for the Israelite people. And they're all there on top of this mountain. And Elijah comes to the people. And he says this in verse 21. He says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people, they answered not a word. They didn't respond at all. So Elijah's coming to them and he's saying, if God is God, hey, serve him. If Baal's God, then serve him. And no one says a word. It's just like this quietness on the mountaintop. You see, Elijah wanted to force the Israelites to choose who they were going to serve. Are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve God, the King of kings and Lord of lords? And he accuses them of something. If you look in that verse 21, it uses the word falter. But it's actually a Hebrew word and I had him put it up on the screen because I don't know how to say it. And that word actually means to limp. That word means to limp. So what he was saying, the implication is that their worship was half-hearted, that they were going, limping back and forth between God and Baal. They would worship God on Saturday, they'd worship Baal on a different day. They would worship, that they were going back and forth. Their opinions weren't held. They, they were worshiping both deities at the same time. They were trying to combine their serving of God and serving of Baal, probably out of the king's disapproval. The king did not want them to do this. He didn't want them to serve God. He wanted them to serve Baal. And it's fascinating to me as I was studying this and thinking about it, I was realizing how much an opinion of people affects us. We say, oh, I don't care what other people think, but we really do. And it changes what we do, and it changes how we live sometimes. And in this case, the people of Israel were following the king. Elijah's trying to get the Israelites to see what they were doing. That they had forgotten that, that moment in time when God had come to them and said, You shall have no other gods before you. And I ask you this morning, are we as a people combining our love of God with other gods? No. We don't bow down to a, an altar of an image of stone or kiss the altar. We don't do that. But we hold gods within us. We hold places in our life where we do not allow Jesus Christ to have lordship. And every place that we don't allow him becomes like a God in our life where we hold our worship of God and then we hold within us those other places. It's almost like 
we come to church on Sunday and, and we come before him and we raise our hands and we sing, blessed be the name of the Lord, and, and we worship him. And we go home and we have all these separate spaces where God's not involved. And the God that we serve is a jealous God. And he isn't satisfied with just Sunday God. He's not satisfied with just you having a part of him. A part of you. He wants all of you. He wants all of your heart and all of it. And it would be almost like what we call divided loyalty. Because... And I really had to look at my own life as I was preparing this, the thought of how much I love God, but then there's those places within me that I reserve and hold tight. Do you have those in your life? As a church, as a body of Christ, and I'm not even just talking about the church here, I'm talking about the church worldwide. As a church and as individuals, we've been on a journey for a number of years. And our faith and our belief, belief systems have been challenged continuously. Have you felt it? And we've been drawn in to conform to the world. You, you have to be politically correct. You have to follow. You, you're not showing love if you don't do this. I've been challenged over and over again about am I living the way that Jesus Christ asked me to in his word or am I living what the world system is demanding upon me? And so there's this challenge within us, this back and forth, this, this tug of war between whether we're going to be 100% sold out for him or we're going to allow the world to have just, just a small part of us just a little bit until we have shifted in what we believe and what we will allow without hardly recognizing it I've seen a shift from the time I was a young when I was first married and what I held sacred and what I believed and I've watched a gradual shift in what I'll allow. And if it's true for me, it's got to be true for you. And this is what had happened to the people in our story. They were drawn in, not even intentionally, but they were drawn little bit by little bit until they were serving two different gods. And we find ourselves that our eyes will look at things that we would have never looked at before. And we're okay with things that in the past might have appalled us. And we're even hardly shocked anymore at what we hear or what we see. And I ask you this morning, do our values match the world more than the word of God? Sometimes we even try to look and walk and talk like the world. And it's been such a gradual shift that we don't, we're not even aware that it's happened. And then on top of that, I don't know about you, but we like to feel comfortable. We don't want to be too radical. I remember once um, Mike and I were at the hub in Chicago 
And there was a group of people prophesying over us and they were prophesying about this house. And I felt myself begin to be uncomfortable. I didn't like the sound of what they were saying might happen in this house. And I, I, I remember that feeling like, um, not too far, not too radical. I don't want to be too radical. And that came to my mind as I was preparing for this this morning. And we have forgotten our standard. The standard is the word of God. And I asked you this morning, have you checked your heart against the word of God? I know that through the season of the masks and the shutdowns and all of that, I found myself responding in ways that I didn't think that Ruth would respond. And I was like, where's that coming from? Where's that coming out of? And God is asking us this morning to take a look at our hearts and our lives. Because the Israelites in our story, they had forgotten their standard. They'd forgotten those encounters they'd had with the living God. The Holy Spirit's wanting to shine his light into the dark places of our hearts and to open the doors from within. And God's asking us to actually evaluate where we truly are because he wants you showdown ready. Because I truly believe another showdown is coming. So I want to go back to our story. I got sidetracked there. Let's go back to the story in verse 22. Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. It's interesting that the prophets of Azareth didn't show up. I don't know how they got out of it, but they didn't show up at that meeting. So it was only the 450 prophets of Baal's there. Maybe they knew what was coming. And Elijah begins to propose a showdown to King Ahab. And he says, this is how it's going to work. In verse 23, he says, Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, the prophets of Baal, and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, and I'll lay it on the wood, and I'll put no fire under it following on it says then you call on the name of your gods and I'll call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire he is God and all the people they're not silent now they all answer and said okay this is well spoken okay we got this so there's going to be this showdown between Elijah and his God and the 450 prophets of Baal and their God. So Elijah says to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourself. Pick which one you want. Prepare it, for for there's lots of you guys. And then call on your God, but don't put any fire under it. Don't do that. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Saying, oh Baal, hear us. 
but there was no voice and no one answered then they begin to leap around the altar which they had made it's interesting that word leaped that's that same Hebrew word that was used for falter that idea of irregular steps of a ritual dance portraying an inability to move properly so this is what's going on there and so at noon Elijah couldn't take it anymore and he begins to mock them and he cries out cry, and he says to them cry out louder cry it loud for he is a god either he's meditating or he's in a is he busy or is he on a journey or perhaps he's sleeping and he needs to be awakened And you know, when you read this story, you can hear that one voice. But imagine this. At the end of that word, all 450 of them begin to cry out loud. Can you hear the volume of what that would have sounded like? So they cried aloud. And then they did something. They began to cut themselves. Because that was the custom of, of their worship. And they'd cut themselves with knives and lances until blood gushed out on them. All 450 of them are dancing and um, crying out to Baal and cutting themselves with knives and lances. And when midday was passed, it's interesting, they begin to prophesy, those 450 prophets, until the time of the evening sacrifice. But 29 says, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid any attention. Then Elijah says to all the people, come near to me. Can you see them gathering around him? And he begins to repair the, the altar of the Lord that had been destroyed. And he picks out the 12 stones and he begins to place them in sequence of the of the names of the different tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he, and he makes that. And with the stones in verse 32, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And then he did an interesting thing. He, he digs a trench around the altar. And it says it's large enough to hold te- two seeds of seed. The New Living Translation said, it would be enough to hold about three gallons of water. And then he takes and he, and he fixes the wood on the altar. He puts the wood where it should go in order. And then he cuts up the bull in pieces and he lays it on top of the wood. So you've got all those rocks and then the wood and then the bull. And then he says, fill four water pots with water and pour it over the bull and the sacrifice and the wood. So he pours it. And it runs down and off into the trench. He says, do it again. And they do it a second time. He says, do it a third time. And they do it a third time. The wood be, be pretty wet. And the bull would be pretty wet. And it said the water ran around the altar and it filled the trench with water. See, Elijah wanted his showdown to leave no doubt in anyone's mind that he had tried to trick them. He wanted them to see that the God of the universe is the God that he served. 
And so he prayed a 63-word prayer at this new altar to the living God. So at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I've done all of these things according to your word. Then he says, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that these people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. There's something you need to understand. That altar that was there with the wood and the, with the, um, the, the bull on it and the water poured over it. The people understood what an altar was all about. It was, a, it was a common place in Israel's worship, that altar. And so they knew the significance of the altar. They knew what that altar represented and that it was all about their hearts. They knew it wasn't about the bull. They knew it was all about their hearts. And they were being beckoned to renew their commitment to the Lord their God, the Holy One of Israel. They knew that the altar was a place of laying something down. We call this the altar. And it's a place of laying and letting go of things that hinder us. Letting go of things that hold us back. Letting go of fears and, and anxiety and things that, that hold us captive. And they understood that and that they knew the deep places within. All the fears they'd had. All their doubts. All their unbelief. At this moment in time, in history, was being challenged right in front of them, right there on that altar before them. And I think in that moment of time, past encounters they'd had with the living God began to go through their mind. Moments when he had come and visited them and spoken to them and called them and stirred their hearts. And they they felt... They felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in that moment before that altar drawing them back to him. And in verse 38, it says this. Then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up all the water in the trench. I'd like you to put a picture up that I found I want you to look at that coming from heaven. What would it have been like if you were on that mountaintop and you're there and you're gathered around that sacrifice and that altar and he prays that prayer and from the heavens. I don't think it came quietly. I think there was a lot of sound. In fact, I think that the earth was probably moving under their feet. It was... I think fear fell on the people in that moment. Can you imagine if in this room at this moment, right before us, the fire of God fell on us, what would our response be? I think it would be the same as theirs. I think they sensed him. I think they sensed his presence coming in that fire. And they felt the intimacy of the Lord. The intimacy of the Holy Spirit invading their very beings. 
And they felt his presence like in the days of old. It's interesting that as the fire consumed, there wasn't even ash left. I don't know about you, I've never seen a fire where there isn't ash left. The rocks, I've never seen a fire burn up rocks. Never. What an awesome, fearful experience it must have been on that mountaintop at that moment. And the water's gone, the wood's gone, the bull's gone. They were all completely consumed. And the fire didn't start under the wood and come up. The fire came from on top, from the very heavens, and came down and consumed it. And they felt the very stunning and awe-inspiring living presence of God in that moment. And it was as if in that moment, in that one second of time, all of their doubts and fears evaporated within them. All their reasoning, all their unbelief, all their fears of men, all the evil, it disappeared like the wood and the rock and the sacrifice. Everything in that moment changed in their hearts and they found, they found their voice that had been lost because of disappointment and fears. And then I think this is what happened. All of a sudden, anger erupted in them when they really realized how, how deceived and frightened they had been during the reign of the wicked Jezebel. And their hearts came to life and they found new hope. New hope. And boldness erupted within them. And they arose as one voice to defeat the darkness. This moment for them was the purification of his beloved people. A fire that burns like that not only purifies, but it transforms people into his anointed ones. We come to his altar and the fire of God falls on our life and it changes us. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. He changes our heart and our lives and our thinking and our feelings and our fears and our doubts. He changes those things where we don't think we can into those places that we know we can. I believe that they were being confronted. That I believe that we are being confronted with the same firestorm this morning. The firestorm of total surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord of our lives. We're, we're too being called to choose. Because there's a showdown before us between the influences of the Baal in our lives and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we need to choose just like they had to choose. And we've got to stop wavering, limping back and forth between two opinions. And our loyalty must arise out of the fire on the altar of our hearts. If God is God, we must follow him full, wholeheartedly. And I want you to look at verse 9, 39. It says, so this fire has fallen and all of this has happened. It says, and when the people saw it, their very first response was that they fell on their faces. And then they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And all through this week, 
that phrase has been coming to me over and over again. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I think we've forgotten that. That the Lord, he is God. When you have an encounter with the the God Most High, it will cause you to fall on your face. Seriously, when's the last time you fell on your face before him? In that moment, the darkness was destroyed and the light hung a huge victory sign up. And a showdown is coming just like that one that arrived in the story long ago. And the prophets of today are predicting it. A move of God is coming that will make past moves of God pale. Are you ready for that kind of move of God? Are you ready for him to fall upon you with a fire that burns up all the drudge? Are you actually ready for him to come in in all of his presence into your presence? You see, when he, the fire fell in the presence of the living God, their first reaction was to hit the floor. And then their hearts cried out. He is the Lord. He is God. The Lord, he is God. God is about to come on the scene and reveal a sense of his presence and his power that we've never experienced before. Is your heart ready? I went to revival meetings in Lakeland, Florida once, and I remember what my heart felt. And I remember the awe. And there was nothing in it compared to this story this morning. And God led me to this story because he wants you as a people to be ready for what's coming. He wants your heart ready to be fully engaged, fully anointed to step into the places that he's called you to. Is your heart ready? And that's a question only you can answer. And each of us face different challenges of our loyalty. The ones, the areas I struggle with, you would probably laugh at. We each have different ones. But the bottom line is that God is a jealous God. And he's wanting your whole heart. Your whole heart. And I ask you, have you allowed your heart to be divided The scripture tells us that we can't serve two masters. We'll either love the one and hate the other. In verse uh, 624 of Matthew, Jesus is speaking it. He says, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And he says mammon there, but it, it refers to any God that we have in our lives. And I ask you this morning to really consider, do you value his presence more than anything else? Sometimes we're all about the hoopla, all about the signs, and all about the wonders, and all about the miracles. And trust me, I believe in them, and I want to see them. But more than any of that, I want his presence. 
want his presence to have all of me, to invade all of me. Oh, the glory of his presence. It's interesting when Jesus was asked, what, what's the most important thing? You all know what it is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. This is the first commandment. That's it. And that's what he's requiring from us. That's what he's wanting us to lay in the altar this morning is our whole heart. Not to hold anything back. To be completely 100% sold out radical for him. And be, okay God, whatever you want to do, that's what I want. As you become more and more like him, As your hunger for his presence invades you you, you, you begin to reflect him more and more. It'll show up in the craziest places. Will you be ready for him to release his anointing through you at this heart palpitating showdown comes on the scene? You see, the Holy Spirit's interested in you being showdown ready. <laughs> As you love and desire him, as it grows, you reflect his nature more and more. You see, then people go, oh, that looks like Jesus. Oh, wow, that response is like Jesus. Oh, that makes me think of God. That makes me think of him. The world and all its attractions fade into the background when our heart is completely loyal to him. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. Am I 100% loyal to him? We can't hold neutral ground anymore. We can't stay in the middle and say, we want God, but we don't want that part of him. And I don't know what it's going to look like in the days to come. And I don't know what that move of God is going to look like because I have no frame for it. But I want my heart to say yes to whatever he wants, whatever he wants to do. David, King David, a man known as a man after God's own heart, used to pray this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. In verse 24 of 139, he says, and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Whole heart, not divided. Oh, may our prayer be, cause me to love you, Lord, with all of my heart. Yeah. No more limping between two opinions. Just him having total ownership of you and me. Won't you stand with me this morning?
feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart right now. If he's tugging on you, if he's stirring you, if he's bringing things to your thoughts and mind, then you need to respond to him. And you need to say, here it is, Lord, I I give it to you. I release my longings and my desires and I take on yours because they're so good. Because he's such a good God. And he wants to pour himself over us. And he wants our hearts ready to receive that awe-inspiring, miraculous sense of his presence like we've never experienced before. He wants to fall on us, church. He wants you to know him intimately in deep ways that you've never known him before. He wants you to cry out to him to be the answer to everything that you're facing. He wants you to see him as your hope, your life, your very being. He's a jealous God because he wants all of you. And he's not as satisfied with just a part. So this morning, I, I, I do, I give you an altar call that you could come to the altar and you could say, yes, God, that's me. I, I'm giving you my all as a sign of, yes, I'm going to serve you. I'm giving you my whole heart. I'm searching to see if there be anything in me, Lord, that you would show me and I'll deal with it. So I invite you to come this morning. I invite you to come to the altar. This morning is an altar moment. He loves you so much. is for good and not for evil to give you purpose and hope he has so much for you church so much for you
leave the altar open for a time. Anyone that needs ministry, anybody wants prayer, it'll be here. And I just bless you as you go today. And I encourage you to seek his face and ask him to reveal himself to you in ways you've never encountered before.